The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today on the Blue Journal podcast, I'm going to be highlighting an editorial called Killer Genes and Silicosis, which appears in the December 15, 2011 edition of the Blue Journal. I'm joined today by Andrew Gio, one of the co-authors of the editorial. Andrew Gio is a researcher and clinician at the United States Environmental Protection Agency in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he's also on the faculty at the University of North Carolina and Duke University. His areas of interest include occupational and environmental pulmonary medicine. In addition, I'm also joined by Professor Tolga Kolker, who is a senior lecturer at the Yale University Department of Economics. He earned Master's in International Relations from the University of Pittsburgh and a Master's and Ph.D. in Political Economy from the University of Southern California. He completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University. Before arriving at Yale, he taught at Hamilton College, and his teaching fields include microeconomics and macroeconomics, as well as international trade and globalization. He has received several teaching awards. His current research focuses on the political economy of Turkey. He is also a member of the Council on Middle Eastern Studies at Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Gio and Professor Coker. Dr. Gio, in your article, you describe a pulmonary silicosis that occurred among Turkish garment workers. It would be great if you could describe briefly what happened to the workers and why, and also how bad was the disease, how many people were affected, and what are some of the public health implications of their disease? What happened in Turkey was that we had a group of young male migrants who moved to the Istanbul area employed to sandblast genes. Sandblasting genes uh, uses an abrasive dust to provide the gene a worn look. And usually in developed countries here in the United States, it's less than 1%, but we provide limits as far as the percentage of quartz that's utilized in sandblasting. In Istanbul, it was greater than 90% that was used for sandblasting. And as a result, this group of young men were exposed to significant levels of quartz, which increased their risk for silicosis. Many of these individuals were actually in their teens when they started such work. The number of workers is difficult to ascertain, but we believe that it's probably up to 5,000. There have been deaths among this group, and they have been diagnosed to have acute and accelerated and chronic silicosis. The numbers dying are now 30 to 40, and the mean age is approximately 25 to 35 for this group. The uh, process that they're dying of is a respiratory death secondary to either acute silicosis or chronic silicosis. Dr. Gio, 
In silicosis, it's known that the incidence of pulmonary tuberculosis can also be higher. I wonder if tuberculosis has been found to be an important health problem in this particular group of folks. The reports in the medical literature have described the epidemic of silicosis in Turkey, and again, this includes acute, accelerated, and chronic silicosis. However, the specific impact that this epidemic has had on the incidence of tuberculosis in Turkey has yet to be reported. Uh, having said that, as we know from previous investigation into this disease, wherever there is significant silica exposure and silicosis, the incidence of tuberculosis will be increased. And it's expected that Turkey will report an increased incidence of tuberculosis over the coming years. Professor Coker, could you describe a little bit more fully what exactly the aged genes industry is and also give us an idea of why the workshops ended up in Turkey at this time? In the Turkish case, what happened is this. When Turkey shifted its development strategy from import substitution to export-led, certain industries were targeted as the industries where Turkish textile can be uh, exported to the world. And as a result, many big garment producers in the Western world shifted their production processes to Turkey. Denim industry was one of them. And when centralizing became popular during 1980s, what happened is many small local companies were subcontracted to basically centralize those denims. And then during 1990s and early 2000s, basically local firms hired many young immigrant workers to sandblast the jeans. This industry is quite big, and in time, Turkey became number three country in the world exporting jeans, and the industry grows to around $2.5 billion. This is only in Turkey. It was the Turkish exports amounted to $2.5 billion. And then, with the increasing pace of globalization, this was a meaningful, on the part of the companies, cost-cutting process. And as a result, what happened is these workers, most of them are also employed without any social security benefits, start getting the silicosis. And then when they, some of them start dying, and when the death reached the number of 40, it attracted huge public attention. And what happened is the workers got organized, and as a result of their protest, the Minister of Health put a ban on sandblasting in 2009 after more than 40 deaths. And one of them later took the Social Security Administration to the court in order to get full benefits and won the case in 2009. And afterwards, actually, this issue became very hot in the Turkish public discourse. And Turkish parliament uh, passed a law to grant full disability benefit, health, and retirement to those who lost more than 15% of their lung capacity, not only to those uh, people, but also to their families in case of a death from uh, silicosis.
Dr. Gio, so Dr. Coker noted that sandblasting genes was until recently legal in Turkey, and you noted that in the process of using sandblasting to age genes, a much higher quartz content was used in the sandblasting material than is permitted in, for example, the United States and probably other developed economies. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what kinds of legislative or regulation-based safeguards there are on similar kinds of work exposures in places such as the United States? Well, I know of at least two. And the first, of course, is the criteria set for airborne silica. And this is 100 micrograms per cubic meter in an occupational setting in the United States. And levels greater than this, as far as an eight-hour time-weighted average, are not allowed. Uh, by law. And this, I believe, has been since the 1970s. In addition, the second legal barrier to something like this happening in the United States would be that since 1979, NIOSH uh, does not allow greater than 1% crystalline silica be used as a media for sandblasting in this country. And again, the material that was used in Turkey was stated to be sometimes greater than 90%. I would imagine that to enforce some of these regulations, such as verifying the silica or quartz content of the sandblasting or measuring the particles in the air, requires pretty active surveillance. Professor Coker, aside from the legislative movements to ban sandblasting in genes, what other kinds of regulatory steps have been taken to ensure that something like this is more difficult in Turkey? There have been some reports that sandblasting is the case, even if it is illegal in Turkey, in some areas where inspection is quite lax. But uh, with this issue, especially when uh, it attracts public attention, it is right now it is fully banned in Turkey. But after uh, the ban, of course, this doesn't mean that it disappeared in other countries. What happened is actually after the Turkish ban, sandblasting shift to other developing countries where uh, labor laws are quite uh, relaxed. And one of them is Egypt, the other one is uh, Bangladesh, and also India and China is the same process right now. So, Professor Coker, in my understanding, economists will sometimes speak of something like this as a uh, in quotation marks, race to the bottom, where uh, companies look for the most permissive, least costly place to do business. Do you think that this kind of industry moving around is an example of such a race to the bottom? And what does that say about uh, the global economy? And Dr. Gio, uh, I would like to ask you, do you think that such a thing could happen in the developed world? Those who are especially against globalization, anti-globalization movement supporters, consider this issue as the race to bottom since the company gets in into a developing country and then literally use the cheap labor in order to make a profit. But in the meantime, those who support globalization claim that the companies are providing jobs the important issue on this particular case is the health of the workers. So sandblasting 
obviously has detrimental uh, health consequences to the workers. So in my opinion, it should be banned all over the world. Regarding whether such an epidemic of silicosis can happen in the developing world, I truly believe that the answer to this is absolutely. With worsening economic status, even developed nations will find it sometimes to their benefit to disregard regulations dictating uh, safety of workers. This happened in the United States uh, with silicosis showing some control during the 1920s in this country. And then in the 1930s with the Great Depression, we had the uh, national tragedy of Hawk's Nest in uh, Golly Bridge, West Virginia. And I believe that if economic conditions worsened even here, an epidemic of silicosis could develop. Dr. Gee, you mentioned an incident that occurred in the United States in the 1930s in West Virginia. You mentioned that incident in your article. I wonder if you could take just a couple of minutes to remind our listeners what happened during that time. Certainly. From 1930 to 1931, a group of migrant workers collected in Golly Bridge, West Virginia, to build a tunnel which would divert the New River for the collection of uh, electrical power. This was really done to provide power to the Union Carbide plant that was nearby. Knowingly or unknowingly, they drilled the tunnel approximately 16,000 feet through industrial-grade silica. This was done predominantly by drilling holes at the face of the tunnel, or the enlarging tunnel, sticking dynamite in it, and blowing parts of the mountain aside. The men would then go in, collect the rubble, and it would be shipped downstream and used as quartz uh, or used for high-quality quartz. This took approximately 18 months to go through the tunnel, but men started dying even before the completion of the tunnel. The reason for this is that the drilling disregarded what was known about silicosis and the control of silicosis at that time. We've known about silicosis for thousands of years since the Greeks mined, and we knew at that time that it could be controlled or levels of silica could be controlled by wet drilling. It was beneficial to those constructing the tunnel to do so very quickly. Uh, Wet drilling will slow it down, although wet drilling will also control levels of silica the men were exposed to. And what they did is they would post guards up in trees so that when the inspectors came by, they would convert from dry to wet drilling. The inspector would see wet drilling and would leave, being quite pleased. And at Golly Bridge, West Virginia, from 1930 to 1931, they did predominantly dry drilling. Thus, uh, levels were very high. And comparable to the epidemic we're now discussing in Turkey, these gentlemen got acute silicosis, which takes very, very high levels of silica to increase one's risk for this uh, specific form of uh, silicosis. It's more of the inflammatory version of silicosis than accelerated or chronic. And men started dying. They were buried in mass graves, some. And the total number is even now unknown. It's somewhere between 700 and 1,000. But there are similarities between what happened in Golly Bridge and what happened in uh, Turkey in that the primary cause of silicosis was disregarded, and that is death levels. primary cause of silicosis uh, was disregarded for economic advantage in uh, both cases. 
One other similarity that strikes me is that you describe the workers at Gali Bridge as being migrants, and, and I believe the workers in the Istanbul-based garment industry were also migrants. Professor Coker, would you tell us a little bit about uh, the story of the migrant workers? What kind of people were they, and why were they moving to Istanbul to look for work? In Turkey, since the uh, 1950s, there's a huge uh, internal uh, migration from the rural areas to the urban areas. And uh, Istanbul, as the center of the industry in Turkey, attracted many migrant workers to find a better life. And uh, Istanbul continually gets a uh, higher and higher number of immigrants, but most of them, unfortunately, are uh, very unskilled uh, labor. So when they come to the new town, they look for a job, and most of the time uh, they agree to work uh, even with no social benefits or with no health benefits. So they are the ones who are vulnerable for the companies who are looking for workers who will be working at a lower rate and who will disregard the health issues. And textile industry is one of them. And when the sandblasting became a good source of income for those local companies who got contracts from the big garment industry, then the Afghans were there, and then they were the, simply the good pool of workers who are looking for a work and uh, agreed to work at a lower rate. Since most of them were also uneducated, they had no idea about decremental uh, health consequences of breathing silica, sand, or other types of uh, hazardous material. They only realized that uh, when their friends start dying and when the number reached more than 40, obviously they uh, said that, look, this is not by uh, chance, and they start getting organized. And uh, there are more than 40, of course, uh, affected. The numbers, they are saying that the number of patients with silicosis in Turkey is reported to be around 1,200, and the number of workers who are working in the industry is ranging from 5,000 to 10,000. So in the future, we will expect more uh, silicosis cases in Turkey. Finally, Dr. Gio, your article mentions that some of the companies that market the genes have changed their practices. I wonder if you could very briefly tell us about that and what if anything, consumers might be able to do to make sure that workers are treated fairly? Well, yes. Uh, there are alternatives to providing uh, war and look to denim other than sandblasting them, as was the practice in Turkey that led to this epidemic of silicosis. You can treat them with certain chemicals to provide them uh, that look. It's stated, I believe, that these methodologies are somewhat more expensive and the control of the worn look it may not be quite as good. However, uh, responsible parties in the industries and uh, government also has made sure that, at least in Turkey, that sandblasting is no longer conducted. Some part of this, however, came from economic uh, stress provided by consumers. Consumers started a no sandblasting movement and actually started asking denim gene manufacturers and sellers, uh, the stores that uh, actually were selling uh, the pants, 
whether sandblasting had been used to prepare. As a result of the economic inquiries, the practice was stopped, or at least in some part. Now, what can we do as physicians to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again is difficult. Uh, what we've got to do is we've got to remain attentive to uh, concerns among the workers. Uh, we've got to talk to our patients. And uh, even if it's only a single line in a history and exam, we should always be asking what the individual is doing. I think it's always helpful to us as pulmonologists to know a good occupational history, and it takes some time to get a good occupational history. Here, uh, I can do nothing but praise our Turkish counterparts, the pulmonologists uh, in the Istanbul area that defined this epidemiology uh, did some wonderful medicine. They took good histories. They identified the epidemic, and they controlled it. I would like to think that the same could happen here in this country and uh, other places around the world as a result of good medical care. Part of that medical care is taking a good medical history, uh, good occupational history, recognizing and reporting the exposure and the disease. Sometimes uh, also our efforts are going to have to go outside of medicine. We're going to have to get involved in regulation. And even as individuals, we may be called upon to not buy genes that have been sandblasted. Today I spoke with Dr. Andrew Gio, who's an environmental and occupational health specialist from North Carolina, as well as Professor Tolka Coker, an expert on the political economy of Turkey and the Middle East. We discussed the phenomenon of silicosis among garment workers exposed to high levels of quartz during the sandblasting process to give genes an aged look. We discussed the roles of globalization and migrant workers in this phenomenon and compared the phenomenon to previous occupational tragedies, some of which happened here in the United States. Thank you for listening to the Blue Journal podcast.